0: Hello and welcome to Based on a True Story. On today's episode, we're going to learn more about the movie Tombstone. That's because it was on today, October 26th, back in the year 1881, that one of the most famous gunfights in the history of the American Old West took place. The gunfight at the O.K. Corral. That would make today the 138th anniversary. Now if you're a long-time listener to the podcast, you'll know that we already covered Tombstone a few years ago back on episode number 59. But I wanted to cover this story again because, quite honestly, I received a ton of feedback about that first episode, and a lot of that feedback was conflicting. One person would say one thing and then another would say something else that conflicted with the previous story. So, I found the perfect person to help us separate fact from fiction. After all, who better to find out about one of the most popular gunfights in the history of the Old West than Chris Wimmer, the host and producer of one of the most popular podcasts about the Old West. Chris's podcast is simply called Legends of the Old West, and he's covered the true history in extreme detail across an entire season of his show. But before we get Chris on the line, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. Now, if you're a longtime listener, you already know how this works. But if you're new to the show, welcome. Here's how this little game works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. The gunfight at the OK Corral did not actually take place at the OK Corral. Number two, Wyatt Earp was killed when he was playing pool. Number three, Johnny Ringo and Doc Holliday did not duel like we see in the movie. Got him? Okay, now, as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, You'll know which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Alright, now it's time to get Chris on the line to chat about the historical accuracy of the movie Tombstone. Let's start this with the Earp brothers. Now in the beginning of the movie, we see Wyatt, Virgil, and Morgan Earp arrive in Tombstone, Arizona. And the movie implies they're not there to uphold the wall, the law, I should say. In fact, when they get there, Wyatt is met by the Cochise County Sheriff, John Bean, And immediately upon hearing his name, Wyatt Earp's name, he says, oh, Wyatt Earp, Dodge City. But then Wyatt tells the sheriff that he gave all that up. He's going into business now. So can you give us A brief explanation of the Earp brothers before the timeline of the movie, and was it that the movie implies Wyatt Earp was in Dodge City? What was it that he gave up in Dodge City, and what brought them to Tombstone?
1: Right, yeah, there's actually, there's a lot to go through there, and I'll I'll try to keep it pretty concise. So specifically, yes, in that moment, Johnny Behan is referring to Wyatt Earp's career as a lawman. Before he comes to Tombstone, Wyatt had worked as a peace officer in various capacities, you know, marshal, assistant marshal, things like that, in several cow towns in Kansas. That's where he did most of his law work. And of course, the most famous cow town that he was involved in was Dodge City. So he was a pretty well-respected lawman in those times. He was, as far as character traits, fairly similar to what you do see in the movie. He's pretty no-nonsense, pretty straightforward that's very similar to who he was. But he also wasn't, he never viewed the career of law, the profession of law as a career that he wanted to go into. He didn't see himself as being a full-time lawman for the rest of his life. He always wanted to, like a lot of people, he wanted to strike it rich and live the easy life. He kind of fell into being a lawman and was good at it and therefore was sought after to be a lawman but after doing that for several years in all these cow towns across Kansas, by the end of the 1870s, he's decided he's had enough of that. It's time to strike it rich and live the easy life. So that's why he and his brothers are headed to Tombstone, is because they've they've heard some of these rumors. So if you, if you want to expand a little more, the sequence actually begins with Virgil Earp, one of Wyatt's older brothers. They don't see this in the movie. But Virgil is the first one to go to Arizona. He and his wife are in Prescott, Arizona, a small town in central Arizona, and he's sending letters back to Wyatt Earp telling him of all the riches that can be had in Arizona. These boom towns are springing up in southern Arizona because of the silver strikes. So at that point in Wyatt's life, that's all the, the impetus he needs to, to move down to Arizona. So he packs up himself and the woman he's involved with at the time, whose name is correct in the movie, Celia Ann, who went by Maddie. They were never married, and that's why you hear a little kind of a dig from Doc Holliday later in the movie about Wyatt considering himself a married man. But Wyatt and Celia Ann are together. The two of them and Wyatt's oldest brother, Jim, and his wife, the four of them, Leave Dodge City, Kansas and make their way toward Tombstone and stop in Las Vegas, New Mexico to pick up Doc Holliday and his paramour, Kate Elder. And then they all continue on to Prescott, Arizona and join up with Virgil. And that's how the whole group, at least some of who we saw in the movie, ends up in Arizona. And then from there they make their travels down to, to Tombstone. But I know we'll get to that in some later questions here. So that's hopefully the short version of how that whole process worked. And there's a lot more to it, but that's hopefully the quick version.
0: Well, it sounds like, because oh, in the movie, yeah, they they have Doc Holliday there who's already in Tombstone when they get there. But, it, but you were saying that they actually picked up Doc Holliday along the way. So he wasn't already there in Tombstone?
1: No, he wasn't. And so, yeah, to move a little further down the trail here, when this whole group, when the, when the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday and everyone are in Prescott, Arizona, Virgil, Wyatt, and Jim and their wives all begin to travel down to Tombstone. They all arrive in Tombstone first, and Morgan is a later arrival. Unlike the movie, he does not arrive with everyone at the same time. So those three Earp brothers, Virgil, Jim, and Wyatt and their wives travel down to Tombstone. Doc and Kate actually stay up in Prescott for a time they stay up there for a length of time and then they arrive in Tombstone later. So it was actually the Earps and then Doc who arrive in Tombstone. That was the order.
0: Interesting. So was there somebody who filled that role that, because in the movie, Doc Holliday, he's been there long enough that he's kind of almost, he's almost, you know, showing them around town, like who's who in the town. Did they have anybody like that when they arrived that they already knew in Tombstone? Not
1: necessarily to that degree, When you think about a lot of the towns in the Southwest that sprang up for whatever reason, sometimes because of mineral strikes and other things, a lot of the same types of people who populated Texas and the cow towns in the Southern Midwest drifted West. So a lot of times they would have come in contact with each other throughout West Texas and then New Mexico and then Arizona as everybody just migrated West. So there were people that That doc and wyatt and others had come in contact with but there wasn't you know the role of tour guide the way doc plays in the movie that's more a device for the audience so the audience can understand who's who and quickly understand the lay of the land without wyatt having to go through and meet all of these people and do this whole thing all over again
0: okay that that makes sense i mean they have a tour guide for the the viewer of the movie at least (laughs) yeah exactly I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history and that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago. Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park and couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. EarnIn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Well, speaking of a tour guide, one of the people that Doc Holiday points out as kind of the tour guide is the main villain in the movie, who is uh, nicknamed Curly Bill, and his gang, they're called the Cowboys, which is the most generic name that I can think of. Basically, Doc Holliday explains to the Earps as they arrive that the Cowboys rule Tombstone. And then, according to the movie, in A Drunken Rampage One Night, Curly Bill kills the marshal, Fred White, And then that leads into Virgil Earp taking the job. Is that kind of setup that the movie is is talking about with Curly Bill and the cowboys, and then leading into the Earps getting into law in Tombstone? Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, for
1: the most part. Yeah, there's definitely a couple things I want to point out here because overall, the movie Tombstone. I guess you could say it's as accurate as a fictional Hollywood feature film can be or probably ever will be. It's not a documentary, obviously. It's meant to entertain and not to inform. So you take everything with a bit of a grain of salt. But the vast majority of scenes or sequences or pivotal moments you see in the movie do have some sort of nugget of truth behind them. They're obviously wrapped in layers of embellishment. But very few things in the movie are just completely fictitious and just made up entirely by the writers. The city historian of Tombstone, Don Taylor, who has become a friend of mine over the last couple of years, would certainly want me to point out one of those at this point. The red sashes that the cowboys wear is entirely fictional. They did not have any kind of distinguishing feature. In fact, that's what made the cowboys very difficult to distinguish. They looked just like everybody else. They looked like any drifter cow hand who was coming from Texas. They were, it wasn't like you could spot one standing on the street and say, that guy's not only a literal cowboy, a person who works with cattle, he's also an outlaw. That was very hard to do for the most part because the cowboys as a group were a very big, very loose organization. And Curly Bill Brocious was one of their leaders. They didn't have like a very set full-time leader. Johnny Ringo, who you see in the movie, of course, was a leader. Ike Clanton was a leader at times. Ike Clanton's father was a leader at times. So the, it was a very interesting organization. So as far as this specific moment goes, the conflict between Curly Bill and Marshall Fred White, as far as we know, it happened fairly similar to what you see in the movie. The details have been changed a little for Dramatic License, but the story goes that there was a a scuffle of some sort in a side street, and there were gunshots. And obviously, the people in the town, including Wyatt and some of the others who become prominent in the story, heard these gunshots, and they came running to this side street. They found two men scuffling, and one of whom was Curly Bill Brocious. Fred White gets in a scuffle with Curly Bill, and as Wyatt is trying to pat down curly bill and try to check for weapons fred white is grabbing the gun that is in curly bill's hand the gun goes off and shoots fred white so whether or not curly bill intentionally pulled the trigger and really wanted to kill fred white is maybe still a matter of contention but there was a scuffle between the two men curly bill was holding the gun that did kill fred white And then, yes, Virgil Earp did take over temporarily as town marshal. But another detail that you just can't get into in a movie that has to be two hours long is that Virgil Earp became town marshal for, I think it was something like 12 days until an election could be held to fill the position permanently. And then Virgil actually lost the election and was not elected town marshal. His kind of full-time marshalship, I guess if that's even a word, Uh, came later in the story. But another slightly interesting facet is that Virgil was a deputy U.S. Marshal up in Prescott, and he arrived in Tombstone as a deputy U.S. Marshal. So he did have the standing of law. He just wasn't a town marshal at the time.
0: So would he still have jurisdiction there as a U.S. Marshal?
1: Yeah, because his jurisdiction covered that Southern Arizona area.
0: Okay. So it makes sense that he would be the temporary... Until uh, an election, then it wasn't like he was just randomly picked. Like he was kind of the law that was left, essentially.
1: Yeah, he had some official standing. So he would have been looked at as an authority figure. Uh, you know, whether it was because people just liked, at this point, I, I apologize. I can't remember specifically. There's, as you find if you dive into Tombstone history, everybody's connected somehow. And there's a long backstory to all the characters, many of whom never make an appearance in the movie. And the men who enter into the political sphere or become lawmen all have their connections and their ties. So the guy who actually does become town marshal has all kinds of deep connections that lead him to become town marshal instead of Virgil Earp. But Virgil Earp still retains his US Marshal's badge until later in the in the story.
0: I mean, that makes sense if you think of it as an election in the town and they're relative newcomers. So it would make sense even just from that perspective that he he wouldn't win that sort of an election, even if he hadn't a reputation elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the things that we see in the movie after Virgil becomes the marshal is, one of his first acts is to enact a law that outlaws carrying guns in town limits. And according to the movie, it, it actually works. It restores order in the town, at least, at first. <laughs> uh, that is until in the movie we see some cowboys ride into town and they're fully armed and they know about the law, they're just ignoring it. That's the implication that we get in the movie. And so that's when we see the Earp brothers, along with Doc Holiday, who's holding a shotgun, confront six cowboys. They're announcing their intention to disarm them. Two of the cowboys run away after the ERPs arrive, leaving essentially a four-on-four. And then it doesn't take long until this breaks out into one of the most famous gunfights of the Old West, the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. Now, we'll talk about the actual fight itself, but can you talk about the events leading up to the gunfight? Was the movie accurate in that it was the Earps and Doc Holliday essentially trying to disarm the cowboys from that law that said you're not allowed to carry guns in town? Was that the reason for the fight itself?
1: Yeah, you're right. We'll get into the actual fight in a second, but there's a lot in there. And so in somewhat of a literal terms, yes, on the surface, the herbs and Doc Holiday did confront the four cowboys in the vacant lot to ostensibly disarm them. Those men were armed. They had been threatening the lives of the herbs and the holidays. That is true. And I can walk through a little bit of that sequence. But that's much more of just an immediate surface reason. Than the real underlying reason. So that without getting too deep into the weeds, and you know, all, all of this stuff is covered in great detail in my show, so I certainly won't repeat all of it here, because it would take forever. But there is a long history of conflict between the ERPS and various members of what were called the Cowboys. It was an 18-month buildup until this moment. And they went back and forth. There's all kinds of shenanigans that happen on both sides. It's very messy and very long. And then in the 24 hours before the gunfight, it really escalates. Ike Clanton was threatening the lives of the Herbs and Doc Holliday. He was drinking heavily all night and early in the morning. There was a confrontation similar to what you see in the movie uh, between Virgil and Ike and Wyatt and, and another one of the cowboys, Tom McClowry, I believe, there were some little spats back and forth. And then by the time the afternoon of the gunfight arrives, of the day of the gunfight arrives, the Earps and Doc Holliday have been hearing these threats for a long time. There have already been some minor conflicts. But to some degree, they they think maybe the Cowboys are leaving. They've been hearing people keep running up to, just like you see in the movie, people keep running up to the herbs and Doc Holliday and repeating the threats they've heard from the Cowboys. But at the same time, the herbs are hearing that the Cowboys are working their way through town toward the OK Corral, which was a working stable. So they, the herbs thought, well, maybe the Cowboys have had enough. Maybe they're going to get on their horses and ride away. But that's not what happens. So by the time Johnny Behan tries to insert himself into the mix and says, OK, I'll go down there and disarm these guys. By that point, the herbs have pretty much had enough. They say, "Okay, Johnny, we'll wait for you to go down and disarm the Cowboys, even though Johnny has pretty clearly portrayed himself as being aligned with the Cowboys. So the idea that that Johnny Behan is going to go down there and disarm them, you know, falls on deaf ears for the most part. It's like it's a hollow gesture. But the Herbs do the due diligence. They wait about 20 minutes or so. Johnny Behan has not come out, has not come back. There are still reports that these cowboys are in town and now they're moving away from the OK Corral. It's clear they're not going to leave. So now the Earps take action and they begin what was not famous then, but is a perfect movie moment. They begin their walk through the streets of Tombstone to find the cowboys as they have been drifting away from the OK Corral. So it's similar to what you see in the movie, but you know there is some dramatic license in there.
0: Sure, sure. Well, that makes sense. And it makes sense that it would be the final straw as it sounds like you're explaining, you know, a lot of stuff leading up to it, but this was just kind of the the final moment they've had enough.
1: Very much. That's really what it was. There was a long history of back and forth that got really heated right before the gunfight and by that point, you know, the a conflict was almost inevitable.
0: Well, speaking of the conflict, since the gunfight at the OK Corral was and probably is one of the most popular gunfights in the Old West today. I thought it'd be interesting to do a little bit of a, a quick fire fact check on it. I know you go uh, into a lot more detail on your show, but just some of the the overview of what happens in the movie. I'll explain what happens in the movie. And then if you could just let us know if that really happened or not. And you can go into as much depth as you want to. I'll leave that up to you if you just want to keep it surface level and kind of an overview. Sure. The first one here is, like you mentioned, they walk down down the uh, streets of, of Tombstone, but then there's these two sides and there's a tense calm in the air, you know, some tension there where you see two sides of armed men staring each other down. And then the camera cuts in on Doc Holliday and he winks at one of the cowboys. And that's the initiation of, okay, we know that something's going to happen. Do we know if it was a Doc Holiday wink or Doc Holiday at all that was the final straw, so to speak, of the actual gunfight itself? I don't think anyone
1: could probably say 100%, but I think the odds would be pretty strong against Doc Holiday winking. That seems to be much, much more of a Hollywood moment and a great moment for Val Kilmer playing his wonderful version of Doc Holiday. The rest of it is, though, very, very similar. Initially, before the gunfight, Doc Holliday did have this walking stick, this cane that he exchanged for a shotgun with Virgil Earp. That did happen. So Virgil Earp is carrying Doc's cane. Doc does have a shotgun. When the four when the three Earps and Doc Holiday arrive at the lot, they're not in a, you know, kind of a straight line like that, actually. There's a little more stagger to it. Doc has the shotgun. He In the movie, you will see Doc Holley shrug off his coat and raise the shotgun. According to the reports, that part did happen. But we don't, I think there's probably very little evidence to show that he actually winked and that's how it all began. But again, as you see in the movie, Virgil Earp raises up that black cane with the silver top on it that he had taken from Doc and he yells, you know, something like, hold, I don't want that. You know, we, I don't want, we're not here for a shootout. And that part really did happen. That was basically the last moment before the shooting started.
0: All things considered, it sounds like they did a pretty decent job. Again, going back to, of course, it's at the end of the day, it's entertainment. Um, So it's not going to be 100% accurate, of course. Yeah. The next shot that we see in the gunfight is really the first angle that we see where somebody pulls up a gun. You see a gun leaving its holster, and it's close up of a cowboy that's the one that Doc Holliday winked at. Do we know who drew their guns first? There's varying reports. I think the common wisdom now, the most agreed
1: upon version now, is that Wyatt Earp and Frank McClowry pulled their guns at almost the same time. When the Earps and Doc Holliday arrive, Billy Clanton and Tom McClowry, well, the two Clantons, Billy and Ike are in the, in the lot, and the two McClowry's, Frank and Tom are in the lot. I believe it's Billy Clanton and Frank McClowry who start reaching for their guns as the herbs come up. That starts to establish the tension. Then Virgil yells, Hold, I don't want that. And then almost right after that, Frank and Wyatt pull their guns at about the same time. Wyatt shoots Frank McClowry in the stomach. Frank's shot goes wide. And then the next gunshot comes from Billy Clanton, I believe. So Frank, Frank McClowry and Wyatt pull and fire almost at the same time to start the whole thing off.
0: Okay, yeah, that was going to be one of my next questions because in the movie, we see Wyatt shoot first. You see the cowboy drawing and then Wyatt as well, of course, as Wyatt seems to be a faster draw. So he's the one that actually shot first. So it seems like they got it pretty close there. Yeah,
1: it, it's very similar. In, in the milliseconds that were involved, it's probably hard to tell who actually fired their gun first or maybe began to draw first. By Wyatt's own account, he does draw and fire very early. So if not right before Frank McClowry, he pulls almost at the same time. Maybe with the second he sees Frank McClowry, this thing is going to now escalate into a gunfight. Wyatt pulls and begins to fire. And as you probably have seen in the movie through Kurt Russell's portrayal, from my understanding, Wyatt Earp in real life was a very cool customer. You know, he was one of those guys who stayed calm during a crazy gunfight. And so maybe part of the idea that he might have drawn first, and I think he says he does, but either way, he lands the first shot because he's unfazed by all of this stuff. And the Cowboys are freaked out and firing more wildly than Wyatt. So Wyatt scores a hit, if you want to say it that way. And so maybe that has helped generate the idea that he actually drew and fired first.
0: Now, in the movie, it doesn't take long once the shooting starts, for two of the four cowboys to get shot. And then a third is close behind after the horse that he was using for some cover moves, and then Doc Holliday shoots him with a shotgun. But then a fourth cowboy raises his hands and pleads the Erps to stop shooting. Did the cowboys try to stop the gunfight partway through? Yes and no. Ike Clanton,
1: who really is the instigator of a lot of this stuff, is the cowboy who throws up his hands and says, I got no gun. uh, Don't shoot me and runs toward Wyatt Earp. That did actually happen. Ike Clanton throws up his hands and says, you know, I've got no gun. I don't remember his, his specific words, but he throws up his hands and shows that he does not want to be a part of this. And he rushes toward Wyatt Earp and collides with Wyatt Earp. And Wyatt Earp does say to him, you know, get to fighting or get away. The fight has commenced either fight or get out of here. And so Ike Clanton exits the fight and we might get into exactly what he did afterwards, but he, that part did happen. He did run up to Wyatt and then gets out of the way and is not part of the gunfight. The thing you referenced previously is that, yeah, I believe it's Tom McClowry who is next to a horse and is using the horse for cover and then eventually gets shot by the shotgun, which, uh, which also happens in, in real life. That Doc Holliday did shoot Tom McClowry with the shotgun after the horse got out of the way as well.
0: As you're talking about this, it's fascinating to me that it's not like we have it on video that we can go back and re- you know, know what happened. This is all coming from the accounts of the people that were there. And you think about how this is happening in milliseconds between different things. The fact that we're able to break this down in this much detail is, it's impressive, it's surprising.
1: <laughs> yeah, and luckily, because... You know, at least on the, on the Earp and Doc Holiday side, everyone on that side of, of the equation survived. And Wyatt Earp wrote a very famous handwritten diagram of how it all went down. And there were various other people. I mean, this happened right in the middle of town, more or less. Like there were two main streets going through Tombstone, and this happened right in one of them. And, and I can kind of get into exactly how it ended, literally in the middle of the street. But this happened in full view of everyone. There were other witnesses. So you have a lot of different people. So we didn't have video evidence. But we had a lot of different people's testimony to try to verify things. But of course, in the heat of the moment, everybody gave conflicting statements. So even though we have a generally agreed upon sequence,
0: no one will ever be 100% sure. Sure. And that makes sense. That's the way a lot of history is. In the movie, though, we see that Virgil is shot in the leg and Morgan is shot in the chest. Were they actually injured in the gunfight?
1: Yeah, and this is pretty accurate. So yes, uh, Virgil was absolutely shot in the leg. Morgan's injury was a a little more visceral, actually, and I won't get into too much graphic detail, but he was shot in the right shoulder and the bullet actually travels across his back and exits out of his left shoulder. So it's a very strange, like he's, it's like he's someone fired at him and he spun to the side at the last second and the bullet just kind of traveled along his back. So he was technically injured in both shoulders. So, but yeah, like he, both guys were injured. Morgan's was just a little different than is portrayed in the movie.
0: Going back to the, the movie here, the man that in the building, he, he, the guy who held up his gun, he went into a building nearby, but then he ends up, shooting from that building. Almost instantly, it seems like all of a sudden, the Earps and Doc Holliday are surrounded almost for a a time where they have the cowboys on one side, and then this guy who we thought was out of the gunfight uh, reenters that. Were they actually shot at from a nearby building like that?
1: No, this this is a little bit of dramatic license. In the movie, that's Ike Clanton again, who has rushed up to Wyatt Earp, and said he has no gun and he's supposed to run away from the fight. In real life, he did run away from the fight. He was no longer involved in it. In the movie, his character circles around into Fly's boarding house slash Photoshop uh, and grabs a gun and begins firing through a window. And that's just a little uh, you know, dramatic license for entertainment value.
0: Now, I want to talk about the duration of it because I timed this. And in the movie that scene lasts one minute and 29 seconds from that first shot until the last shot. So how long was the actual gunfight?
1: Yeah, here's some great little nuggets about the fight. I love talking about these. So that's that's not too far off. The actual gunfight, I believe the, the most common number you'll see associated with it is it lasted about 27 seconds. And in In that 27 seconds. So, yeah, the the gunfight in the movie is only about a minute longer than it actually lasted in real life. Now, of course, that would have felt like an eternity, but it's less than 30 seconds in real life. And during that time period, there were somewhere around 30 shots fired. So almost, I mean, you're talking about a ton of shooting. And the most interesting thing that certainly if if your listeners haven't done so, I hope this spurs them to go check it out. You can find a photo online, uh, if memory serves that someone took of the vacant lot where the gunfight took place a couple years after the fact, before you know the town changed and it was demolished. So you can see just how narrow this is. And so the mistaken, the biggest misnomer maybe in the history of the West is the gunfight at the OK Corral. The gunfight did not actually happen at the OK Corral. It happened at a vacant lot that backed up against the OK Corral. So you could walk through this vacant lot and into the back of the OK Corral. So that's how the sequence started. The cowboys were near the OK Corral and they just walked through this empty space in this town block and ended up at this vacant lot next to Fly's boarding house. Uh, And that's where they were finally found and confronted by the Earps. So this lot is really narrow. So like if anyone has a two car garage, it's about that wide. So if you picture four guys standing just outside the door of the of the garage with weapons drawn, and four guys inside the garage. One of those guys inside runs away, and now there's seven guys firing at each other in this tiny space for 30 seconds with bullets flying everywhere. And one of them is Doc Holliday with a shotgun. So it must have just been mayhem there for 30
0: seconds. I mean that that really paints a picture, and it really makes me. I mean. In the movie, at at the end, we see Virgil and Morgan are injured. We talked about that, and then there's three dead cowboys and one escaped. But it, when you paint the picture like that, it really would surprise me that anybody would survive. What was the actual end result of the the gunfight?
1: Yeah, you you got it right, and that's that was when I did the research on it. That was one of the, one of the startling revelations to me too, because I you know I'd seen the movie Tombstone and I loved it, and I assumed that was basically how it all worked. Uh, And for the most part, it was. So yes, three cowboys were killed. The three cowboys who stayed in the fight, Frank McClowry, Tom McClowry, and Billy Clanton all died. They didn't necessarily die immediately in the gunfight. Billy and Tom lingered a couple more hours before they died of their wounds. But all three men did die as a result of the gunfight. Virgil and Morgan were injured, more or less the way you see in the movie. Doc Holliday had a Like a minor scratch on his hip. A bullet grazed him. It cut through his coat. And he initially thought he was much more badly injured than he was. When they finally looked at it, it was just a minor scratch. And then the kind of miraculous part is that Wyatt Earp, who was right in the middle, right in the forefront, in the thick of the whole thing, was never scratched. He never received a wound. And that was kind of the miracle of Wyatt Earp's life. In everything he did, he was never sustained an injury. He was never shot. He's never sustained any kind of um, severe blow of any, you know, really any kind. So he was just one of those guys. It just the bullets seemed to miss him every time.
0: It's a guy to have on your side, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. In the movie, after the gunfight at the OK Corral happens, or in the vacant lot next to the OK Corral, if we correct that, we see that the cowboys are out for revenge. And so we see Virgil Earp gets ambushed and shot in the back with a shotgun. Uh, He isn't killed, but he's pretty badly injured, as you could imagine getting shot with a shotgun would do. And then Morgan Earp is not as lucky. He actually is killed. In the movie, we see it when he's shot, he's playing billiards, and somebody shoots through the window and, and kills him. So did the attempted murder of Virgil and the successful murder of Morgan happen that way that we saw in the movie?
1: Very, very similar. Yes, this is another one of those things that's very similar. And I, and this is another thing I would mention to any, anyone listening who was very who's interested in seeing Tombstone, Arizona, and seeing this stuff. The Oriental Saloon, uh, which I'll I'll talk about in greater detail in a second, has just been restored to a saloon. You know, the, a lot of these places in these old west towns change shape and name, but now the Oriental Saloon is back to being itself. So Virgil Earp, about well, let's see, what it would be. Two months after the gunfight at the OK Corral, Virgil Earp walks out of the Oriental Saloon, which is one of the big saloons in town. He walks across the street toward the Crystal Palace Saloon. And while he's about halfway across the street between those two saloons, there are gunshots that come out of the dark from a diagonal angle across the street in a different direction. And because he's walking from one place to another and that the angle that this, that the gunshots came from, they just pulverized his left arm. So he takes the full force of, I believe, two to three gunshots in his left arm as he's walking from one saloon to the other. And you can actually do that walk in Tombstone now. You can walk out of the crystal or the Oriental and walk toward the Crystal Palace and you can kind of see how this thing all went down. So... He takes that gunshot and Wyatt and everybody rush him up to his hotel room. The doctors fear all night that he's going to die, but he does pull through. Although, just like you see in the movie, he can never use his left arm again. It's just been shredded and he he keeps the arm. They don't amputate his arm, but he's never able to use it again. It just hangs limp at his side. And then about three months later... Morgan Earp is playing pool in a pool hall and Wyatt is there and gunshots do fly through the windows at night and do shoot Morgan pretty much the way you see in the movie. He's shot in the back. Again, like some of the others, he lingers a little while, but then ultimately he does die uh, You know, right there in that pool hall. And so that's, as, as I'm sure we'll get to, that's kind of, that's again, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back.
0: Now, with the timeline there, of course, it all happens relatively quickly as far as the movie is concerned. And so it's safe to assume that the Cowboys are the bad guy. Is it generally accepted that the Cowboys were behind this retaliation against Virgil and Morgan?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it was always assumed that the Cowboys were. Again, you know, how much proof they would have had would have been difficult. There were. Various little things found, you know, at some of the crime scenes, like in the vacant building where the the shooters were supposedly waiting for Virgil Earp, there were some little pieces of evidence that pointed toward various members of the Cowboys. Once an investigation of Morgan's murder began, there were interviews conducted and, and names came to light of people who were probably responsible for it in some way, whether they were actually there on the ground when the triggers pulled or whether they somehow worked with the with the killers to organize the thing there were there was basically a list of cowboys generated who were thought to be involved in one or both attempts
0: makes sense as it like you're saying earlier where leading up to the gunfight at the okay corral itself you know there's this long history of things so <laughs> of course that's only going to continue on
1: yeah nobody was surprised when the, when the chief suspects became apparent
0: Well, in the movie, after Morgan is killed, at first, Wyatt Earp wants to leave town. He doesn't want any more bloodshed. He wants to get out of there. But then the cowboys ambush them as they're trying to leave. Wyatt shoots first. He kills one of the two cowboys that are there. And then he lets the other one go so that he can run back to Curly Bill, who, again, in the movie is kind of the leader of the cowboys. But he's letting him know that Wyatt's going to come for him. He's coming after him. Meanwhile, we also see that Virgil does leave town. So he leaves town on the train, but Wyatt does not. Is that actually what happened?
1: Generally speaking, yeah. yeah so after, after those two tragic events, after Virgil is ambushed and Morgan is killed, uh, that's, that essentially signals the end of the Earp clan in Tombstone. So the Earps, including Jim Earp, who has been in Tombstone this whole time, the great Overlook Jim Earp, who was a, a, in the saloon business for his entire life. He was working as a bartender and saloon operator in Tombstone during this whole thing. We just never really see, you don't see him at all in the movie. Uh, he's overshadowed by everyone else.
0: I can see this now, the sequel to Tombstone. What about Jim? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what happened to Jim? So Jim's there the whole time. We just We just don't see him. And he plays
1: you know, a small role in some of the events that led up to the gunfight. But obviously, once the gunfight happens, the whole story is dominated by Virgil, uh, Wyatt, and then Morgan. And as uh, I'll briefly touch on in a second, the youngest brother of the clan, Warren Earp, joins Wyatt on what we're going to talk about here, the Vendetta ride. So yes, after the ambush, ambushes of Virgil and Morgan, the whole Earp clan packs up. And at this point, the patriarch of the clan. So the Earps family all live out in California. So Wyatt puts Virgil on a train. He puts Morgan's body on a train and the wives and basically sends everyone west to California to safety while he, Wyatt, and Doc, and several others try to track down the cowboys. And it it does begin with a confrontation right there on the train platform. Which I believe was in Tucson, if I'm not mistaken. I could be, I could be wrong on that. I didn't look up that specific detail when and I should have. But either way, it begins on the train platform with the killing of Frank Stillwell. So that is that is kind of what you see. I, you know, I don't. There's no classic hero moment where Wyatt Earp allows one of the two cowboys to live. I believe it's Ike Clanton in the movie, and shouts a, a famous line. You know, tell him I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. That didn't happen that way. It's a great movie moment, but the the confrontation did happen. You know, Frank Stilwell was shot and killed on the train platform. Another cowboy, and I believe it is Ike Clanton, though it might've been a more peripheral character, runs away and, and Wyatt tries to catch him, but he's not able to. So that guy does escape and therefore is kind of able to warn people, but it's not the ominous warning issued by Wyatt Earp. And then afterwards, of course, then it becomes the what was dubbed later the Vendetta Ride or Wyatt Earp's Vendetta Ride, where he he and his crew try to track down as many of the cowboys as possible. And that's probably the biggest dramatic license in the movie, other than the red sashes, is that the Vendetta Ride is not quite as crazy and bloody as it appears in the movie. In real life, they weren't hanging guys in the middle of town squares or barging in on cowboys while they're in brothels or just shooting people like crazy. It wasn't quite that violent.
0: Okay. Yeah. That was going to be one of my questions. Cause you see like why it rides a horse into a barbershop or something. The guy's getting a shave and then just, just kills him. It seems like he's snapped. He's kind of gone off on the deep end and just, you know, this has turned into something. Well, I guess, you know, Morgan dying, it's turned into something very, very personal. So what actually happened on that vendetta ride then? Was, was it more he was trying to arrest them or was he actually trying to go out and kill them? You know, to be honest, it was
1: probably a little bit of both. I don't think he had any qualms about killing them. He probably had no problem killing these guys, but it, it would not have been the murderous rampage that it portrayed in the movie. And just like everything in this story, it's a much longer, more drawn out affair. This would not have seemed strange to Wyatt. And that's in hindsight, people tend to look at what we've now called this vendetta ride and has been shaped by the movies as something that was just this crazy swath of destruction that was cut through this land and through these people. But Wyatt's brother was injured. One of his brothers was killed. It made perfect sense for him, especially as a lawman, to try to track down the people who did it. He had no faith in Johnny Behan or the local law enforcement. So anybody in the Old West would have done the same. This was very common for a relative and especially a lawman to try to track down these killers. So in his mind, he's thinking, I have every right to track these guys down. If they don't come peaceably, I won't, have, won't shed a tear uh, if I end up shooting them. So it takes about three weeks. There's about three weeks of time where Wyatt and Doc and all of their group are riding through the hills of southern Arizona and trying to track down the cowboys. Meanwhile, various groups of cowboys led by Johnny Ringo and Curly Bill Brocius and Ike Clanton are also creating posses and chasing Wyatt. So like, it's this almost, to some degree, little comical circle of all these guys are all chasing each other all over southern Arizona. And Wyatt and his group do track down a few of the cowboys. They, are, they do track down one of the guys who was supposedly was involved in the murder of Morgan Earp. That guy ends up dead, but there are no witnesses to his actual killing. That's pretty well, pretty widely acknowledged. I think that that Wyatt Earp and his group are responsible for this man's death. And then there is a confrontation with Curly Bill that is a little more, has a little more speculation around it. But I think, again, the general wisdom is that there was a shootout between Wyatt Earp and Curly Bill Brocious. And I think most people agree that Curly Bill got the worst end of that confrontation.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's what we see happen. It's like in the middle of a river or something when that's kind of the end of the the sequence shots of Wyatt tracking down the Cowboys is when we see that confrontation with him and Curly Bill.
1: Yeah. And it's very similar. So yeah, that is close to the end of the, of the three-week saga of this thing. In reality, it's Wyatt Earp and his group are going toward a water hole in the mountains, uh, like a natural spring where they can get water. Meanwhile, Curly Bill and several cowboys are hiding at that same spring, waiting to ambush Wyatt's group, and Wyatt's group rides right into the ambush, and it turns into a shootout, and miraculously, again, in such close quarters, Wyatt Earp is not injured, though his clothing and his coat, his long duster coat are shredded and pockmarked, and everyone can't believe that he was able to come out of this thing alive, but the, I think the accepted story is that Wyatt did shoot Curly Bill Brocius with a shotgun, and Curly Bill died as a result. Now, you will certainly find all kinds of rumors that say that Curly Bill was not there. It was he wasn't actually the one who was shot. Or that Curly Bill was shot, but he didn't die. And, you know, like a, a legendary character, he turns up down the road under an assumed identity because nobody can ever find his body. He just kind of disappears after that moment. So you're gonna find a bunch of different stories out there, but I my guess is the general wisdom is that. Wyatt Earp and Curly Bill did get into a shootout. Wyatt Earp did shoot Curly Bill with a shotgun, and Curly Bill probably did die as a result.
0: You mentioned Wyatt Earp being a, a lawman. It would make perfect sense that he would try to find his brother's killer and, the, and whoever shot Virgil. But at that point, was he actually a lawman? He had, Because it was Virgil that was a deputy U.S. marshal, right? Wyatt was not technically a lawman at that point, even though he was previously. Wasn't that part of the things that he was giving up to go to Tombstone. So was he still a lawman? It is slightly
1: complicated that he did assume lawman status at various points during this whole process. And I believe you see in the film, though I haven't watched it in a while, I can't believe I didn't use this as the perfect reason to go back and watch it for the thousandth time. He did, I believe he assumes, I believe he becomes a deputy US marshal like Virgil to be able to make this whole thing legal. I'm almost positive that that's how it worked. He had performed various lawmen duties while in Tombstone, whether he was wearing a badge or not, or officially sworn in or not. He was recognized as an authority figure, just like Virgil. And then, of course, Morgan, who were actual lawmen in Tombstone. And I believe that if I have my, if I have my, my memory serves, Virgil does become a deputy U.S. Marshal. And he actually did. He ran for the office of county sheriff. Like, that's part of this, too, the, the backstory that we didn't really get into. He ran for county sheriff of the area around Tombstone against Johnny Behan. And there's a whole political conflict with those two guys that, we, that is just, it's way too much backstory to get into. But because of that, he thought he would have been the county sheriff of the area. I believe it was Pima County at that time around Tombstone. Maybe it still is Pima County. I'm going from memory on that, but I believe he was in some fashion granted lawman status. And I believe it was a deputy U.S. marshal while he was doing this.
0: Okay. Yeah. As I recall in the movie, I think it is that, you know, once Virgil essentially becomes the marshal and then he makes his brother's marshals, it's kind of, you know, I'm I'm the law now. And so my friends are the law as well, <laughs> was kind of the implication I got from, as far as the movie is concerned.
1: Yeah. And that does happen. Like Virgil was a marshal temporarily. Then he does become the actual town marshal. It just at a later time, it didn't happen as fast as it's portrayed in the movie because everything has to be sped up in the movie, of course. And Morgan does become a special deputy to Virgil. They are local lawmen. And I think it's even possible that Virgil could have retained his deputy US marshal status though I'm not positive, but I think they kind of traded these badges a little bit. So I think when Virgil leaves the Southern Arizona, Wyatt essentially assumes the role that Virgil had had previously of deputy U.S. Marshal. There is the U.S. Marshal in charge of the Arizona Territory, I believe, makes Wyatt a deputy U.S. Marshal, kind of formalizes the process there.
0: Going back to the movie's timeline and the way the movie depicts things, after the showdown with Curly Bill, we assume in the movie, of course, he's the leader of the Cowboys, so we assume that kind of the leader of the Cowboys is dead, but then there's another showdown that happens in the movie, and that is with Johnny Ringo. We saw him earlier, and I think earlier they were in a a saloon or something, and and Doc calls him the, the deadliest pistol tier since Wild Bill. But then at the end of the movie it's actually Johnny Ringo that challenges Wyatt Earp to a one-on-one duel. Wyatt accepts, but then Doc Holliday knows that Ringo is faster than Wyatt Earp. So Doc actually shows up first and he's the one that duels Ringo. Doc Holliday is faster, he kills Ringo, and then once Wyatt gets there he tells Doc that it's time to finish this and then we see shots of Wyatt and Doc shooting down more cowboys and kind of just finishing all of this off. So there's a few different plot points there, but how accurate was the movie there in the duel between Johnny Ringo and Doc Holliday? Did it actually happen? And then wrapping up the feud of sorts between the Earps and the Cowboys. I feel a little bad. I feel like I'm going to be shattering all the fun
1: moments for your listeners. (laughs) Well, that's, that's the whole point, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. We're separating fact from fiction here, so please don't let my words hurt your viewing of the movie, anyone. I love the movie just as much as everybody else, even though I have sadly now learned the truth of it all. So in reality, there was no challenge between Johnny Ringo and Wyatt Earp. There was no duel between Doc Holliday and Johnny Ringo. But if you wanted to go with a little bit of nugget of truth with it, here is the The truth that could have led to that movie moment if it wasn't just completely made up out of whole cloth. So Johnny Ringo was a very mysterious person in the Old West anyway. We really don't know that much about his life. There's so much shrouded in mystery that you can create about anything you want out of Johnny Ringo's real character. So Johnny Ringo was found dead in the mountains at the base of a tree, I believe, with a single gunshot wound to the head. That part is true as far as we understand it. So if you worked backwards, if you accepted that as how he was found dead, you could create your own really dramatic way that he ended up that way. But there's almost no chance that it involved Wyatt or Doc. You know, Johnny was an outlaw. He met an outlaw's end.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds like they had the end in sight and how can we fit this into the story without bringing in any more characters?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Like everything, like almost everything. There's some little kernel of truth to it somewhere.
0: I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, even though it's something that it kind of does shatter some of the perfect Hollywood ending as far as that part of the movie is concerned. But still, I mean, that's that's real life. You know, it's not always the same, and they're going to have to find a way to make it an entertaining movie. And I still enjoy the movie. So, <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, speaking of the end of the movie, at the very end, we do hear some voiceover, that, and we just kind of see what happens to these characters at the very end. And basically, Doc Holliday, he ends up dying of tuberculosis. He suffered from it throughout the entire movie, and then he ends up dying from that. We see we hear some voiceover that explains Virgil Earp went back to California. He became a sheriff there. We talked a little bit about that. And then we also hear that why Earp's story essentially ends happily ever after. We haven't really talked about her that much, but it says that he spent the next 47 years with Josephine Marcus. Uh, So what happened for these characters? Did the movie portray that ending for them correctly?
1: Yeah, for the most part, it did. Doc Holliday did pass away in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, of tuberculosis. Virgil Erb did become a lawman. I believe it was fairly brief, but he did become a lawman again in California with the use of just one arm. And Wyatt Erb did rekindle a romance with Josephine Marcus, which is, man, you could almost make a whole movie out of that. That's another long and complicated story that they had to greatly condense and maybe fabricate to some degree in the film. But uh, but yeah, he did rekindle that romance and then they spent the rest of their lives together and they did travel everywhere through California and up to Alaska. And wider. did become kind of an advisor in the early days of the film industry that all that stuff did happen. It's pretty accurate.
0: Well, it sounds like despite all the, the horrors that that must have been to live through something like that, it seems like at least they, hopefully they found some peace towards the end.
1: Yeah, it sounds like. And I think one of the interesting things to throw out at the very end here is that, you know, Wyatt Earp, from what I have read, he never really understood what the big deal was. He never sought fame. He never viewed anything he did as so extraordinary. He just viewed it as things anyone would have done in his situation. And in all reality, they were things that did happen over and over again. You know, lawmen did chase down fugitives Relatives did track down the people who harmed their, their relatives. Like That stuff was all very common back then. The part that was uncommon that seems to have set Wide Earp's life apart and, every, and all this, these events apart is that there were very few, if any, gunfights like the one at the OK Corral or, I guess, at the vacant lot on Fremont Street. And this is a little nugget I should throw out there, too, that for the first 50 years after the gunfight, it was called the fight on Fremont Street, there were two different versions of it, but I think most common was the fight on Fremont Street because that's where it took place. The vacant lot opened up onto Fremont Street, and that's the street that the herbs were standing in when they were firing into the lot where the cowboys were. And one of the cowboys dies right in the middle of Fremont Street. So the whole thing took place on Fremont Street. And it was an author writing, I believe, in the 30s who coined it coined the name the gunfight at the OK Corral. So that's where the the misnomer comes from. So the difference is that there were very few shootouts like the gunfight at the OK Corral where seven or eight guys are firing at each other at the same time. If, If there was a gunfight at all, it was generally a drunken shootout between one or two guys and they very rarely hit anything. This situation was unique, which is why it has lived on and then propelled further by the vendetta ride, which wasn't nearly as bloody as it's been made out to be in the movies, but it did happen. And so all of those things put together have just made into this phenomenal story and this really interesting legend.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on to chat about Tombstone. And I know there's a ton more information that we could talk about this, but I always like to leave the listeners with recommendation for where they can learn to get even more. I know you have an entire season dedicated to the true story behind Tombstone, but there's so much more. Can you share a little bit about your podcast and where someone listening to this can go find it?
1: Yeah. First, I guess the, the second thing first, you can find it on pretty much every major podcast platform. So Apple Podcasts is certainly the most popular But it's on Spotify and iHeartRadio and TuneIn and Stitcher and all the major podcast platforms, pretty much wherever you want to listen to it, including, I guess, Google Podcasts, which is now uh, they've they've completely redone their whole podcast setup. So it's much better than it used to be. So it's out there for pretty much everywhere. The season about Tombstone, which is just called Tombstone, is season two of the Legends of the Old West podcast where, yeah, you can hear... The whole history of the Earps and Doc Holliday and how they got to Tombstone and all the events from start to finish over the course of those episodes. And then a couple interviews with, as I mentioned earlier, the city historian of Tombstone, Arizona, Don Taylor, who knows more about these events than just about any other person alive. He lives and breathes it every day down in Tombstone. He was a great resource during the production and he's become a good friend afterwards. And then, of course, there are several books out there if you, want, if you want to grab those. There's no shortage of material to read about. The the Gunfight at the OK Corral and the participants of it. The Gunfight at the OK Corral is the most written about event in the history of the American West. More things have been produced. Books, movies, articles, whatever. More content has been generated about that gunfight than anything else in the history of the West. So there's plenty of stuff out there if you want to take that dive. <laughs>
0: Again, thank you so much for coming on and chatting about the true story behind Tombstone. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. Which, in the case of a conversation like today, that just means I came up with the questions and then we got to learn together from Chris Wimmer. Thanks again to Chris for sharing his time and knowledge with us. With a story like we covered today, there are so many details that we couldn't hope to cover in a single episode. So if you want to dive deeper, pull open your favorite podcast app and do a search for Legends of the Old West. That is Chris's podcast, and he's got an entire season dedicated to Tombstone. But don't stop there. As the name implies, Chris's podcast has a ton of, of other great stories from the Old West. And as always, if you need that link again later, I'll make sure to include a link to Chris's podcast on the page for this episode over at Podcast.com. And while you're there, don't forget to request some of your own favorite movies that you'd like to see get covered on a future episode. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the gunfight at the OK Corral did not actually take place at the OK Corral. Number two, Wyatt Earp was killed while he was playing pool. Number three, Johnny Ringo and Doc Holliday did not duel like we see in the movie. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. is true. As Chris mentioned, the gunfight at the OK Corral is actually a misnomer. The gunfight itself took place in a vacant lot next to the OK Corral. That brings us to number three. That is also true. The way the movie ends with Johnny Ringo calling out Wyatt Earp for a duel and then Doc Holliday taking his place and killing Johnny Ringo is all made up. The truth, as Chris explained, is a lot more foggy. The truth is, we just don't know the circumstances surrounding Johnny Ringo's death. That means the lie is... Number two. It was Morgan Earp, not Wyatt, who was killed in a pool hall in Tombstone. That brings us to an end of this episode. I'd like to thank Chris Wimmer for coming on the show one more time. I learned a ton, and I hope you did too. Before we go, there is one last thing I'd like to do. I've never heard a podcast share the stats for each episode, but I'm a big fan of being as open as possible. So I figure, why not? If you find out more about how much time and money it takes to create a podcast like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts you'll listen to for free a little more. With that said, here are the final stats for the creation of this episode you heard today. Today's episode took a total of 19 hours to create and cost $13.38 in out-of-pocket expenses. Now, that doesn't include the cost of the movie itself because I already own Tombstone, so I didn't have to buy it again. And it's probably worth pointing out that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. So that does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject that we talked about, nor does it include any of my ongoing costs. For example, the monthly podcast and website hosting costs that pop up again every month. It also doesn't account for any of the time outside of the writing, researching, and producing this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the website, things like that. That's outside producing this one episode that's not included in that time. Don't forget you can help keep Base on a True Story ad-free and independent by supporting the podcast over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a way of saying thank you, you'll get access to hours of exclusive bonus content on the producer's feed. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to this story you heard today, hop onto the Base on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan lefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at com. Now, if you're not able to support the show monetarily, no problem at all. I'm so happy that you've given me some of your precious time for the last hour or so. I hope you've enjoyed this time together as much as I have. And until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.